you don't mind, to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been taking our time through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus so that we can understand, as I just prayed about, this really important link that we see elsewhere in the Scriptures, especially in Paul's writings, between who we are, our identity, and who we are to be. We could call this our worship. Worship, of course, is far more than singing on Sundays. We worship every day. We worship something or someone. It is planted within us. It's part of the design of, of who we are as image bearers. We are created to worship something. We, we can't help it. It's inevitable. Now, as we often see in the Scriptures, God in His great wisdom and care for us calls us to worship, but He grounds our worship in who we are. You may have heard this terminology before, and I'm going to say it out loud at the risk of sounding a little nerdy and academic, but sometimes you perhaps have heard the terminology that there is an inextricable link between the indicatives in Scripture and the imperatives in Scripture. Some of you are happy I just said those words out loud. Some of you are lost, so let me explain what I mean by those. The indicatives of Scripture are the truth statements, who we are. The imperatives of Scripture are the commands, what we are to do, who we are to be. We run a great risk when we run to the imperatives, to the commands, first of all. And it is no mistake in the very design of Scripture, the way that the Holy Spirit inspired that they would be written, that in Paul's writings we see often that the imperatives follow upon the indicatives. That is to say, the indicatives start first, or to now come down off my academic high horse, who we are in Christ is expressed clearly first. And then what we are to do as worshipers of Christ is expressed second. So over the past several months, we have been taking our time through Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 to hear again and again and again who we are and all we are to understand as sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, recipients of the sealing of the Spirit. We have been told multiple times in many different ways that we have been blessed in Christ and therefore we are to understand our great privileges. Paul capped that off for us last week as we looked into chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 and he said, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In so many ways, Ephesians has a hinge in it. The hinge of Ephesians is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, and the book turns here. It turns from the truth statements, who we are in Christ, to now in chapters 4 through 6, who we are to be, how we are to live, how we are to practically worship. I want to turn together some pages 
in our Bibles. This is a good practice from time to time so that we can see how Paul does this elsewhere, so I can prove to you that this is a pretty common pattern. If you know the book of Romans, we studied it together several years ago as a church. Romans chapters 1 through 8, and perhaps we could say chapters 1 through 11, are this long explanation of all the privileges that we have in Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to see something similar in Romans chapter 12 that we will look at together today in the book of Ephesians. So if Romans chapters 1 through 11 are all the privileges that we have in Christ, we've been justified by grace through faith, Romans chapter 12 verses 1 through 2 provide us a pivot point, a transition. Paul says in these familiar verses to you, Romans chapter 12 verses 1 through 2, I appeal to you therefore, in light of all that I've said before, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And look with me in Colossians. Colossians chapters 1 through 2, Paul does something very similar as he does in Romans chapters 1 through 11 or Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. In Colossians chapters 1 through 2, Paul explains that we are complete in Christ. We've been given all that we need. Our sins have been forgiven. And God looks at us as complete in His Son. And then he says in chapter 3 verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul does this elsewhere. A few of his letters are sort of interlaced with truth statements and commands, but, but often in his letters and other places like 1 Thessalonians, for instance, we find in the book of Galatians that Paul goes to great pains to explain to his people, these people over whom he has charge, all the privileges that they have in Christ. And as we will talk about at the end of our time today, he wants them to consistently drink very deeply from the well of the gospel. This will become a normal practice for them, that they will think carefully about all the privileges that have been granted them in Christ. They have been forgiven. They have been reconciled. They have been redeemed. They have been adopted. They have been promised the assurance of glory in the future to come. But in light of all of this, in light of all these privileges that we have in Christ, we are called to faithful worship. We will not take time to rehearse in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, so you can turn back there with me now. All those privileges, that's what we've been doing over the past number of months. But as we saw last week in this hinge, Ephesians chapter 3 verses 20 through 21, Paul makes the transition and now we find ourselves in the new portion of the book the transition place, where we find now the calling that is upon us. Andy read these verses for us before, but let's read the first three verses of our section that we're now stepping into, and we'll take time to explore these verses today. This is God's Word. I therefore, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And may God bless to us these short but all precious words. Paul has hinted earlier in the letter that he is going to eventually get to how these people are to live. We saw this back in chapter 1, verse 4. There's a great promise in chapter 1, verse 4, that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, but there's also a statement of design that you see in chapter 1, verse 4. Look at it with me. We who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world were chosen so that we would be holy and blameless. And three times in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul says that God has done all of this. He's blessed us in Christ, chosen us, predestined us, forgiven us. Why? That His glorious grace might be praised. So, as you see in chapter 1, verse 12, we were the first to hope in Christ that we might praise His glory. And again, this doesn't just mean when we get together to sing some songs. It means that every day, and we see this in chapter 1, verse 14, the Spirit has been given as the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That's the end of our lives. Why? That we might praise His glory with our very lives. As we just read in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we are to be living sacrifices. And so, that's how we're going to approach Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 today. I think Paul opens up this section by calling us to be lovers. Lovers of God and specifically lovers of one another. But not just some sort of sappy sentimentalism. Paul calls us to lay our lives down. He calls us to love sacrificially. Any of us who are any kind of meaningful relationship are learning what that looks like, right? I've been married now for a little bit over 18 years, which frankly blows my mind because I still feel like a little kid a lot of the time. And yet I'm not anymore. I'm getting older, my hair's thinning out more and more and getting more and more gray. And uh, it's funny that I've been in relationship with my wife this long. In fact, we've been together far longer than that because we dated for quite a while. And if I'm learning anything in my relationship with my wife more and more, it's, it's that I have to be a person who lays my life down for her. And that's really hard. Now, she's easy to love, but, but I'm not always an easy one to give love. And I think this has shown up perhaps even more with my children. I have four of them now, and they require a lot of attention. They range in age from almost four to a new 12-year-old. And therefore, those four kids in their various stages of life are doing all kinds of different things and experiencing all kinds of different things. The other night, Jack had an activity with the youth group. We got home kind of late, dropped all of his many friends off. Uh, I felt, you know, like a taxi service, more like Uber, like an Uber XL because we were in the Yukon. So I dropped all the kids off and didn't get paid for it, so it was unlike Uber in that sense. And uh, we got back home, and Jack had not had a great night with his friends. It, it was kind of difficult, and he's now entering, you know, he's in his first year of junior high, middle school, and 
So friendships are changing and becoming far more important. And he'd had a kind of a tough night with a few of his friends and was disappointed and, and was pretty emotional about it. And, and I knew this was coming because as I was listening to his friends interact a little bit, um, I could tell he wasn't quite right. And so when we got home, he was, he was really emotional about it. And, and I just wanted to get inside. It had been a long week, and I was tired, and I just wanted to hang out with Whitney and watch a movie or something. But I knew my, I knew my boy needed me, and so I, I, I did the opposite of what I wanted to do. Now, I don't get some special reward for that. That's my job, right? I'm called to be his father. But, but being a dad has, has called me to, to be a sacrificer, to be a lover of others. And you guys are experiencing this in your marriages and with your children or, or with your friends. Real love is sacrificial. And of course, the clearest expression of this is, is Jesus himself. We will get to this in chapter 5 whenever we explore the dimensions of marriage or how we respond to God's privileges given to us in Christ and the way we order our marriages. So, so even our marriages are a response to the privileges that we have in Christ. But it's interesting that the model that the husband is given, how he is to love his wife, is the way that Christ loved the church. And husbands are called in Ephesians chapter 5 to, to lay their lives down for the church. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Those of you who have done any premarital or marital counseling with me know that I'm usually much harder on the guys than I am on the gals. Telling you guys all the time that in so many ways you start this. You are the, you are the initiator of the loving cycle of relationship in your marriages. Because the model is Christ initiating love for the church, laying his life down for her. And therefore, you see in Jesus himself the model of sacrificial love. Jesus didn't save us by just saying, hey, these people are pretty great. They're my, they're my buddies, and I'd like to bring them into the club, Father. Jesus brought us into the family of God by temporarily, as we've said many times, becoming an orphan that we might become sons and daughters. And that took sacrifice. So at the very heart of love is this notion of sacrifice. And, and if we want to explore this from a, a big biblical concept, isn't this what the, the Scriptures as a whole proclaim to us? That God created the world in perfection, knowing full well that it would sin. And as soon as it did sin, He came up with a plan. But that plan had already been guaranteed before the foundation of the world. We know that because we've already talked about it today in Ephesians chapter 1. God decided that humanity in their sin would be rescued. And what would that require? It would require the sacrifice of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. For when God promised Eve that one of her seed would come and conquer the devilish serpent, Sacrificial love was implied. And as Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, they were clothed with the skins of an animal, prophetically foreshadowing the sacrifice of the one who would come, the one whom John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
John did not speak of Jesus in regal terms, terms of royalty, but in terms of sacrifice. And that's just what Jesus did. Jesus came to die. But he has risen and he reigns. But he will come again and he will bring the restoration. But even in eternity, though he will be known as the Lion of Judah, the regal king of his people, he will be forever known as the Lamb who laid his life down for his people. And so, though Jesus is our king, he is our savior, the model of love for us, the embodiment of sacrificial love, and therefore we are called to the same. And that is why in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul can open this way. I therefore, to read it again, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That we might live for the praise of God's glorious grace. That we might be holy and blameless. And as we will see later on in chapter 5, when husbands are challenged to love their wives, Jesus chapter 5, verse 26, loved the church that he might sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of water. Why? Chapter 5, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That is the trajectory to which we are headed. And though Jesus will do that by his sovereign grace, we are called to actively obey. So here's this really, really important link that you cannot miss or you will completely misapproach, if we can make up a word, Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. Anything good in us now or in the future is guaranteed by a loving Lord. He will bring it sovereignly, providentially, graciously to pass. But we are called to active obedience. So, We must maintain this tension. Who we are, the privileges we've been given, the guarantees that have been granted to us, and yet our call to active participation. And therefore this transition that we find now in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4 that he is a prisoner for God. We saw this back in chapter 3 verse 1. And that is literal. Paul was writing this from prison. Now as we talked about, Briefly in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul was at a very low point. And I think there's some parallels for us today. None of us likely will be incarcerated later this week. If you are, let us know. The elders will show up to help you. But you find yourself perhaps at a pretty low point, some of you today. Some of you have a proclivity toward this. Some of you are low a lot. That's just how you are. That's your demeanor, that's your personality, that's the way you approach life. Or perhaps you've had such a difficult life because of your experiences that you look at life kind of darkly. So by nature and nurture, you approach the world in a difficult way. And that's just who you are. It's hard for you. Others of you who are generally sort of postured toward happiness and and you sort of happy-go-lucky, you might find yourself today at a pretty low point. And though that doesn't characterize you, you don't like where you're at today. The truth of the matter is, as we look at Paul, despite his very low point where he could have been questioning God, perhaps even turning from God, losing his faith, he did not. 
You have to think that Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 was not just for this church. It was a way for Paul to rehearse to himself what was true for him. I can tell you from personal experience as I preach the word of God that that's what happens to me. I have to tell you some things each week, but, but I have to worship first. And as I prepare to study and as I prepare to preach, that's what happens. I'm reminded of all the privileges that I have in Christ. So you have to think that as Paul wrote these things down, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, he was reminding himself, he was preaching to himself. He was drinking deeply from the well of the gospel. And then that led him to respond. It led him to faithful ministry, even in the midst of his dark days. He did not give up. He did not lose heart. He was not surprised. Paul understood that there would be a great cost. In fact, at Paul's very conversion, the one who would be his initial disciple, Ananias, was told to tell Paul that Paul would suffer great things for the name of Christ. And though likely we will not endure the same hardships that Christ called Paul to, we will endure hardships as soldiers of Jesus, as sons and daughters of God, as Christians. And if you're not today, buckle in because you will soon. And I think that gives shape to the way that we approach this passage. Don't you find yourself in your depressed state, in your sad days, in your anxious days, just wanting to kind of crawl up in a fetal position, probably metaphorically, but for some of you literally, to wait till the storm breaks and the darkness clears to, to re-engage in faithful following of God. Paul shows us that even in our darkest of days, when, when the world does seem to be falling apart and everything feels a bit fragile, that we are still called to worship to drink deeply from the well of the gospel and to respond with practical obedience. So, so Jesus has called Paul to be his servant and to literally be a prisoner. And so, so out of Paul's experience, the commands seem richer because they're not lived out in some sort of utopia. Paul calls these Ephesian believers to to lead these kinds of lives despite their hardship. And so I say to you today, if you come to this place in a sad state, in a depressed state, in a, in this state, of, in a state of need or, or hardship, you are not exempt from following. I hurt for you if you find yourself in that state today, either commonly or uniquely today, but nevertheless, you are called to faithful obedience and following. Paul urges them, chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. So, this is a little wordy, but it'll set us up for the rest of our time together today. So, you want to follow along with me with the slide I have behind me. We have been blessed beyond measure in Christ and are called to walk faithfully as a response to grateful worship. This will be evidenced by sacrificial love that is, and we'll talk about that in verses 2 through 3. But let's look at the first part of that. We have been blessed beyond measure in Christ and are called to walk faithfully as a response of grateful worship. We've already seen that Paul does this elsewhere in his letters. He reminds the churches of, of who they are in Christ, but then he calls them to consider their calling, their 
their response. So let's think of the fabric of creation itself. Why did God create? So again, we're looking at the big picture of the Bible. Why did God create? We know that after God created all things, He called them good. He was pleased with all the things that He had made. But He made all those things that they might praise His glory, that they might display His greatness, if you will. The changing of the seasons displays His power. The fact that oxygen is processed by green plants displays His wisdom and design. The great variety of animals and flowers that we see all around us displays His beauty. The fact that He's given us the sun and the moon and oceans and mountains and food of great variety. And the fact that He has designed us to live in families and relationships shows His love. And we, the pinnacle of God's creation, we His image bearers, humans, we are able to experience His power and wisdom and beauty and love in ways that nothing else quite can. Because He's made us like Himself, rational, emotional, and volitional. And those of us with rationale and those of us with emotion and those of us with volition or will, despite our sinfulness, He has rescued in His Son. And now because of the design of creation, which is that all things would praise Him, and because of the design of redemption, that He would restore worshipers to Himself, we are called to this high calling. So the very fact that you are created as the pinnacle of God's creation, as an image bearer, with reasoning and feeling and will. And because Jesus has come to rescue all of that, your reasoning and your feelings and your will, the very design of creation and the purpose of redemption is that we would live for the glory of God. And therefore, as we have said in this place before, there should not be a distinction and the way that we talk about Christians and worshipers. Those who are saved and disciples. In other words, there's not two categories of people in our churches. There's not the baseline people who are going to make it. And then the elite group who are going to get the most rewards. That is to say, to make it perhaps a bit more simple. You cannot be a Christian if you are not willing to worship God. And again, more than just singing on Sunday, but every day. Now that does not mean that there are not levels of maturity among peoples in our churches. Of course there are. But it should be that we are all on a basically upward trajectory, that we are all growing toward holiness, that we are all pursuing the praise of the glory of the one who made us and rescued us. This means that none of us are exempt from being called to faithful discipleship. 
This means that over time, all of us should be growing consistently in our love for God, and as we will find in Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, our love for one another. This is logical, it's rational, and it is a command of God. So, yes, we have been granted great and precious privileges as sons and daughters of God. We've been blessed beyond measure. We don't even know. And yet, what are we called to? Faithful following. I think that this will be evidenced by sacrificial love that is, first of all, verse 2, humble. This is Paul's logic. And it's interesting that he starts with love. So he's calling us to, to faithful worship, to lead lives in keeping with the purpose of creation and redemption, why we were made and why we're saved. But, but how does he start this off? And I think this is significant. He could have started with anything. But as a collective people who are living together, collaborative worship, this unified people, he calls them, first of all, to humility. Now, that's interesting, but it's in keeping with what we've already seen in chapters 2 and 3. This church was made up of Jews and Gentiles who formerly, probably, had hostility against one another, who had distinct cultural outlooks, different ways of looking at the world, different personalities, different giftings, different ethnicities, and they were living together as one people. As we will find later on in this section, some of them were masters and some of them were slaves. Think about that for just a minute. Monday through Saturday, there was an economy in which they lived in, and whenever your master told you to do something, you didn't say, hold on a minute, I'll get to it tomorrow because I have to go home sick. You were property. You did what you were told. And yet, clearly, there were times when masters and slaves were both redeemed and worshipped in the same churches. And on Sunday, they were equals. How could people of different ethnicity, different social status, even people who were property, how could they be unified together, living together in an assembly like this? The only way that they were going to be able to do that is if they pursued sacrificial love. And as we see this first characteristic, it had to be marked by humility. It has been said that humility is not merely thinking lowly of yourself. I think that's a trap. That leads to humble bragging. That leads to putting yourself down so the person who hears you putting yourself down will say, oh, come on, you're not that bad. So, so we set them up to praise us. True humility really isn't thinking poorly of yourself. True humility is, as it has been said by someone wiser than me, is not thinking of yourself at all. Now, this is rhetorical. You don't have to raise your hands. But, but how many of you have, have achieved that status? Where you don't just think lowly of yourself, but you don't think of yourself at all? I'm not sure I've ever had a day like that in my life. I aspire to that. I, I wish I was like that. But often, even in my most overtly sacrificial acts of love, I'm still thinking about myself too often. Don't you feel that way? 
It's amazing that I can finish a sermon and walk away from this faux wood pulpit that we have here in our rented facility and hope that I've helped you, but perhaps secretly hope that you like me better. Isn't it interesting that even in our most holy acts that we can still be prideful people? I'm not sure that any of us can ever say that we are humble. In fact, we probably should never say that about ourselves, but I think it should be said about us that we are pursuing humility. To encourage you, I think by and large that characterizes us as a church family. It makes it much easier to shepherd people like that. And I know I speak on behalf of the rest of the elders when I tell you that we're grateful that you are pursuing humility. By and large, our church is not characterized by arrogance, by people who know it all. But we have to be on guard. Paul calls the church in Ephesus to be on guard. To be aware of our tendency, this sort of inexorable tide toward pride. Pride seems to be interlaced with all of our actions, even, even our secret thoughts. And perhaps one of the most wise things that we can do on a daily basis is to ask God to search our hearts and to expose those dimensions of pride that still exist and to help us to fight them. That has become a pretty consistent prayer of mine. God, expose my pride and change me. I do say that I add this addendum to it. Please do it gently. I pray that often. And often he does, usually he does, but I do find there are times where he just wrecks me, exposes me, and shows what's still dark inside of me. Humble love, if we have to define what it looks like, is the kind of love that does not seek its own. Humble love does not use people. Humble love is willing to take some blows. Humble love absorbs. Isn't that how Jesus loved? Jesus took the blows. Jesus absorbed our sin. Jesus took our penalty and loved well. The epitome of this perhaps is when he's on the cross and everyone around him, people that he had made for his own glory and he was dying for them. He says to the Father from whom he will very soon be separated, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. How could the creator of all things, to whom all worship is due, who is laying his life down for such creatures, such sinful, rebellious creatures, how could he say such a thing? Because his love was characterized by humility. Jesus had hard words for the legalists, the self-righteous of his day. But Jesus, in his humble love, hung out with the worst of the day willing to have all manner of evil things said about him with the company that he kept because Jesus was an absorber. Jesus was one who sought the good of others. Such love is costly. It is sacrificial. But it is the kind of love to which we are called in all of our relationships and contextually in a church like this. So, so such love will, will be characterized by absorbing the pain and the struggle and the needs of those around us. 
we absorb the mourning of families who experience loss as we've recently experienced as a church family. We absorb the blows of those who say bad things about us. We give of ourselves sacrificially, of our resources of time and talent and treasure for those who need it more than us because we have been given time, talent, and treasure that we might pour it out for the good of others. It is only those who are pursuing such humility who will be willing to live that way. And though this characterizes us presently, may God continue to grow this in us. And and if we all live that way together, what a beautiful place this would be. Not just for us, but for the community. To a watching world who doesn't know what that looks like. Such love, such absorbing, sacrificial, humble love is appealing and intriguing to those who see it. They won't get it. but you're called to it nevertheless because it brings joy and peace and harmony to such a community as this and it draws people's attention to Jesus who is the epitome of such humble love. Such love will not just be humble, it will be gentle. It won't be harsh. Such people are not brash. Such people try to not be blunt Such people are careful with each other. Such people think of how others will respond as they interact with them. This means that even whenever you have to confront sin, and we must, because if we've been created for the glory of God and we've been redeemed for the glory of God, this means that all sin must be dealt with. And we are called collaboratively to help each other with that. But even such moments where we must deal with one another's shortcomings and sin and unrighteousness, it should be done in a spirit of gentleness. Like a mother takes an infant without power who cannot help itself and gently cares for it, meaning all of its needs in thoughtful, tender, faithful ways, we will do the same for those around us. Jesus was characterized by this. In fact, it was prophesied that he would not hurt those he came to help. Jesus would be characterized by gentleness, by kindness. I think this is hard for us. We see this in its opposite, the the negative side of this, ways we shouldn't live whenever we deal with our kids who are irritating us and annoying us. We sometimes act like this whenever one of our brothers or sisters fails us relationally. We lash out in harshness, wanting to get back. We are retributional at our very nature. We love an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We want justice. The irony of all this, of course, is we don't want justice from God. And if we're being honest with Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, that's not what He gave us. If nothing else, the incarnation of Jesus is about mercy that we didn't get what we deserved. And yet far too often, those of us who are recipients of such mercy, divine mercy, are so quick to lash out and and get our pound of flesh. But it shouldn't be this way. We should be the kind of people who are characterized by by gentleness. And if we're humble people who, who recognize that we ourselves are recipients of grace, nothing that we earned, 
This will lead to gentleness. I think perhaps there is a sequence to Paul's thought. Such people who are characterized by, by humble reflection upon who they were and now the privileges they have in Christ, they will be gentle. We will recognize that those around us desperately need mercy. Not just this, we will be patient, we also see in verse 2. This is difficult. In an age such as ours, that is so fast-paced, so characterized by fractured relationships, and if we're being honest, characterized by by people who don't hang together long-term, this is a call to serious reflection. And I don't think that we can be patient people, again, unless the sequence is true, unless we're humble and therefore gentle. And if we are these two things, I think that will lead us to lives characterized by patience. Here's what I mean. Satan would like nothing better. We'll we'll talk about him in chapter 6 because he's seeking to destroy the church. He's, He's shooting his fiery darts at the saints. But I think he often does it at the very point of our relationships. Because if he can fracture our relationships as brothers and sisters, this calls into question the veracity of the gospel. Here's what I mean. The church is the embodiment of God's presence here on the earth. We saw this in chapter 2, verse 21. We are a structure, a holy temple, a place where he will dwell by his spirit. God displays his character and his love in the church. But when churches fracture, and we're talking about church life here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, unity, the unified people of God, if he can fracture our relationships, if Satan can tempt us to walk away from one another, because we will inevitably sin against one another. It's just going to happen. What happens when you put two sinful people together? Friction will come. Problems will arise. But if we are not characterized by humility, understanding who we were and now what we've been given in Christ, and then gentleness, we will not be patient people. We will walk away from one another when times get tough. Now, this doesn't mean that there's never a time to walk away from a relationship. I don't want to get into that today. I think there are places where we must set up boundaries to use perhaps an overused word and an overused concept. I think that's probably true. But I think that's the end of the line. That should be something that that we fight hard never to get to. Because isn't God so patient with us? Don't you feel this? I mean, if you're you're really being honest and, and you reflect upon the last week of your life or month or year or decade, what do you deserve? Abandonment. And yet your Savior, who died for you and was patient with sinners, ever lives to make intercession for you despite the fact that you've lusted 10,000 times and even your best acts of sacrificial worship were laced with pride 100,000 times. And though you were greedy and selfish and unkind and unfaithful and maybe didn't read your Bible for a year and didn't talk to God for two, Jesus still loves you patiently. And it should ever be as much as lies within us that we live together patiently. This is long-term stuff. 
This isn't hanging on for a week. This isn't being together for a couple of years. This is long-term stuff, my friends. And if we're being honest, in our day and age, that's not normal anymore. But such patient love is intriguing, and it's beautiful, and it's life-giving. It's the way we want our marriages to be. It's the way we want our kids to see us. It's the kind of friendships we all long for. And it's the kind of church that maybe none of us have ever seen, but we all play a critical role in achieving it. So let us be careful to notice that the evil one will be trying to destroy this all the time, tearing apart the very fabric of our relationships. When Satan sees a loose thread, he will start tugging on it, trying to rip apart the fabric of a church like ours. We must be aware of it. We must fight it. Such love will be patient. Such love will be forgiving and loyal, we see at the end of verse 2. We are to bear with one another in love. This is how you stay patient with each other. You forgive each other. And you don't keep a record of wrongs. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. Real love, true love, does not keep a record of wrongs. You know what this is like early on in your marriage? Whenever you didn't really know how to love very well. You thought you did, right? Because you'd seen like serendipity and you'd gone to Tiffany and bought an expensive ring for your wife. And you'd gone to a nice dinner and you had the perfect wedding and all that kind of stuff. I mean, like you thought you knew how to love and then you got like six months into marriage and you thought, how in the world do people do this? And then you start fighting and you get pretty good at it. You get better at fighting early than you do at loving early. And so you learn to fight well. I know I did this early on when my wife would do something that annoyed me. I would, I would clarify to her that this had become a pattern, and I would show her all the ways in which she had failed me. And because of the way my mind works sort of in logical sequence, I could rattle things off in like six seconds. I, I was a record keeper. But you learn pretty on in your marriages that, that such record keeping will wreck you. And by the grace of the Spirit, you, you learn to stop doing that because it just doesn't work. It creates a retributional atmosphere that is ugly. But we do that in our churches, don't we? Such and such a person messed me over again. Such and such a person didn't invite me to something again. Such and such a person keeps failing me. And, and I would want to challenge you on a point for just a moment. And I, I want you to think about this. I think so many of us are characterized by idolatry of relationships. And here's what I mean. I want to clarify what I mean. The greatest relational connection we will ever have, the, the, the relationship that will bring us the most satisfaction beyond measure is our relationship with God. That's true. And, and there, there's, no, there's no fighting against that. God's the only one who can truly make us happy. And that's why Jesus brought us back into relationship with God for his glory and our joy. But if you look back in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, God said that it wasn't good that the man would be alone. He designed people to be in relationship because God had always been in relationship. If you think about it, the relationships that we have are based upon the relationship God the Trinity had always had. So we are designed to be in relationship. God made it this way. 
But because of sin, we expect things out of each other that we just can't deliver on. Things that only God can deliver on. And we hold people to a standard that we, they just can't keep. And frankly, if we're being honest, we don't keep. So, so I, I call you to be cautious with, with the propensity or the potential for idolatry of relationships. And therefore, when somebody fails you, you won't be so surprised. They weren't meant to be your Messiah in the first place. Jesus was. And as you learn to deal with disappointment, you will be more prone to forgive. And in fact, because Jesus is our Messiah, who meets all of our relational needs, you will delight in doing so. Because didn't Jesus delight in doing so? The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus is said to look at the cross as joy. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross, despising the shame. Think of, That doesn't make any sense except for the fact that that's how Jesus loved. Therefore, as we experience and receive such love from Jesus Messiah, we are able to extend it to others. And one of the signs of growth in your life, and I want to challenge you on this point, one of the signs of real growth in your life is that you will not just do it because you have to. You won't just extend forbearing love because you have to, but you'll delight in doing so. It'll show up like this perhaps a brother or sister comes to you and says i failed you or they might even say i failed you again i've done it again how do you respond to that eh, I, I gotta think about this i can't talk to you right now um yeah I, I, i'll think about it you're wounding them you're, you're damaging them you're, you're trying to make them feel the pain of what they've caused you what if instead you're you were postured to immediately respond to them because you're clearly and consistently reflecting on how Jesus loves you faithfully and mercifully? What if reflexively, with delight, you could say to your brother or sister, of course I forgive you. How could I not? I've been forgiven so much. You think, well, that's corny. Nobody talks like that. Maybe that's our problem. Such love, as we've already said, is beautiful and it's rare. You've got to prepare for such love. That doesn't just come. It is hard-earned. But the sequence of humility and gentleness and patience and therefore forgiveness, such love that is loyal, it's the kind of love I think that we all crave. It's restored love. It, it's pre-fall love. It's redemptive love. It's the love that we will all experience together with God in the restoration. But we're being prepared for that now. And may it characterize us now. And in verse 3, such love will be zealous and harmonious. All of us must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit has unified us together as different kinds of people, just like He had done in Ephesus, and had given them a bond of peace. He had taken formerly hostile parties and brought them together in harmony. The Spirit had done that. That's indicative. What had been done for them. But the imperative, the call to action, is that everybody had a part to play in keeping that together. This means you have to overlook some wrongs. It means you have to be patient with people around you who don't live up to your standards. 
S, it means that you have to be careful with people who are very different than you. It means you have to see the good in people when it's so easy to see the bad. It means you have to see the future that Christ holds out for them that perhaps you don't see in fullness yet because they're not fully mature. It means you have to understand your own proclivities and your tendencies towards sinful selfishness, recognizing that if we're not all doing that together, zealously pursuing harmony that's been granted to us in Christ through His Spirit, this place will come apart. It will. Such love is unique. Such love is holy, which basically means unique. I've said to you many times that, that I, along with the rest of the elders, want you to be weird. Guess what, my friends? This love is weird. Humble love, weird. Gentle love, weird. Patient love, super weird. Forgiving and loyal love, crazy odd. Zealous and harmonious love, nobody's ever seen it. We are learning to experience that here. I, I think such love characterizes us as a church. But we can't get lazy, and we can't get prideful, and it demands that all of us are vigilant and careful and eager in doing our part to maintain this. God has achieved it through His Son and granted it to us in His Spirit, but we all have a part to play. Will you do it? It is the calling to which you have been called in your best days or in Paul-like prisoner days. It is hard. It is costly. Satan is on the prowl. He's on the attack. By the grace of God, by the mercy and faithful shepherding of Jesus with whom we are already seated in the heavenly places, we might live this way in days to come. Here's a couple implications for our worship before we close. First, the unity and mission of our church requires collaborative, active participation from each of us. We'll get into the mission of our church a bit later on in this section in chapter 4, this, this mission to make disciples, all of us. But the mission of a church can never take place unless there's unity. So we all must collaboratively, actively pursue this. What does this demand? Careful reflection and loving accountability. This means you've got to take deep, hard looks down inside the dark places of your heart because they're still there. They're not as dark as they once were, but there's still nooks and crannies that are closed off and a bit shadowy. But because you're in Christ, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, you can take a hard look because your righteousness is not in your actions. Your righteousness is in Jesus. So take long, hard, consistent looks. And if you can't quite see it, ask other people to come alongside you and help you. And because their righteousness is in Christ and not in their actions, they'll do it with patience and gentleness and, and forgiveness. And then collaboratively, all of us together doing our part can be aware of our tendencies and live counter to them. Lastly, this will require us to drink deeply from the gospel and lay our lives down just as our Lord Jesus taught us. I use that metaphor with you commonly to help you think of what it is to come to the Bible consistently to listen to sermons. What are you doing? You're slaking your thirst. You're admitting that you're thirsty people, needy people, that without the water of the word to slake that thirst, to satisfy your deepest needs, you will go off the rails. You won't make it. You'll, you'll lead parched, miserable lives. So what do we do instead? 
we drink deeply from the gospel. Recognizing our sinfulness, remembering all that we've been granted in Christ, and then as a response, as a logical response, laying our lives down just like Jesus did. We could say so much more, but that's where we'll stop for today. I want to remind you, as I've already said, that I think by and large, this is the trajectory we're on as a church. I want to encourage you. And yet, if we're being honest, there is still so far to go. So for the glory of Jesus, who laid his life down for his church, and one day will present it to the Father in splendor without blemish, may we do our part to love this way for the glory of our God and for our mutual joy. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who have united us in the bond of peace, now help us. Remind us of the word. Expose our sin. Point us to Jesus. Help us to love one another in this way. That our Lord Jesus might be praised and that we might experience fullness of joy, loving one another, awaiting the restoration, and pointing all who will watch and all who will see back to Jesus who alone can rescue. We pray these things in his name.